Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. to a very special spooky episode of Still Watching. I'm Mary Fair, senior writer Joanna Robinson, and joining me today is... Anthony Bresnikin, a uh, correspondent from Los Angeles for Vanity Fair. <laughs> some some schmo we got out in LA uh, yeah. is here to talk to me. Uh, we're doing a special one-off episode of Still Watching. Uh, Richard Lawson and I are still in the midst of our uh, discussion of We Are Who We Are, but Anthony and I thought we would hop on the mics together and talk to you about The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is on Netflix uh, right the heck now. So um, this is a follow-up of sorts, um, like sort of an anthologized follow-up to The Haunting of Hill House, which came out on Netflix two years ago now, Anthony? Yeah, yeah 2018. Right. Yeah, so... The mastermind, sort of, you know, the 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 Ryan Murphy of this American Horror Story esque <laughs> anthology, uh, is one Mike Flanagan, uh, who uh, Anthony and I are huge fans of. Um, yeah. We love Mike Flanagan. We love his work. Uh, he's done a lot of work adapting Stephen King specifically, but just horror in generally uh, in general. There's Doctor Sleep. There's what is it? Oculus. Gerald's Game. Gerald's Oculus. Game. Yes. What's the uh, one with uh, his wife, Hush? Hush. Yeah, yeah, with Kate Siegel. Kate, Kate, his wife is in a lot of his stuff. And, uh, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, they made the non-supernatural story, Hush, which is about a deaf woman who's got a stalker outside her house. So That one's really interesting. I like. I went on a tear after I watched Haunting of Hill House because I just loved it so much and tried to like – I had already seen Oculus, but I tried to watch everything else sort of in his back catalog and I, you know – I felt the experience was very rewarding. So, um, so yeah, if you want to, if you want to get your fill of Mike Flanagan, a lot of that stuff is available streaming, so you can check it out. Um, He's a very Halloweeny director. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I mean that in a good way. Like you know, once October hits, everybody wants like that spooky story, and he's not a violent, gruesome kind of horror storyteller. He really does lean into like the spiritualism and the. The, the the eeriness and the uh you know the the, the mysteries of the past I, I it's just like exactly what I want <laughs> every October so I like that he he's uh you know on a regular tear with these things he also made a really good uh movie that does, you wouldn't expect to be good Ouija Origin of Evil it was like the sequel oh to is one that of those. good I haven't seen that one yeah it's pretty good like it's it's <laughs> it's very Mike Flanagan like it's 
It's not trash. I mean, it's look, it's about like a Ouija board that summons an evil out of this <laughs> weird house. But like it, in terms of like a ghost story, it's it's pretty good. It's very dark, actually. And uh, yeah, it's not a bad watch. So we need, to, we need to tell the listeners there'll be hidden ghosts throughout the podcast. And one just <laughs> went by, but you won't be able to see them because uh, it's audio. <laughs> So what they're doing with this like haunting series on Netflix um, is uh, appears to be drawing inspiration from famous stories of haunting. The Haunting of Hill House is a, a loose adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House. And um, and this is an adaptation, loose adaptation of Henry James's Turn of the Screw with a couple other Henry James stories sort of sprinkled in there for good measure. We should emphasize loose adaptation, but loose adaptations are often more interesting to me than sort of slavish uh, by the book adaptations. So I have to um, say, I was surprised though watching Bly Manor how much fidelity there is to the Turn of the Screw. You know, yeah, um, it it's expanded upon clearly. There are moments where, like, you know, uh, where she sees a, a vision on a, a parapet at the house while she's out in the yard. And, like, that's straight from the book. When she sees him through the window, all of that is right. straight from the book. And a lot of it matches. So let's, let's like, premise this a little bit. Um, I guess since we're dropping this episode after all the episodes are available on Netflix, uh, we're definitely going to get into a discussion of the full uh, show, but we might let's do like a little section right here at the beginning in case folks haven't watched it, uh, where we don't talk about anything that happens towards the end, and we just sort of like premise it and maybe give some like vague recommendations. Then you guys can press pause on the podcast, go mainline <laughs> several episodes of television, and then come back and and listen to the end. But um, so we'll go spoiler free for a little bit right now. For that's that's my long winded way of saying that. Um, so um. Basically, the way that this is considered an anthology is that it's like the haunting of the haunting of Hill, uh, you know, the haunting of Hill House, the haunting of Bly Manor, right? Um, and then we've got a few uh, cast members who are here again. We've got Henry Thomas, we've got Victoria Pedretti, uh, Katie Siegel, as you said, is in the show. We can't talk yet about what her role is. <clears throat> is that it? Oh, and Carla Gugino. Um, um no, there are a couple. There are, uh, are a couple others. Did we say? Did you mention Henry Thomas already? I did. I did. You mentioned Henry Thomas, but Oliver Jackson Cohen, who was played oh, the right, young, right. Uh, little brother, the the drug addicted yes. little brother in Hill House. He's got House. a big role in this one. Yeah, yeah. he turns up uh, as a as as one of the uh, sort of menacing presences in the house. I don't think that's a spoiler to say. No, that's right. That's pretty early on. That's mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> um, he's, he's the guy who turns up on the pair. Like she just, it's just this. But also, he's not like. He's not some like grim-faced specter like he's he just looks like a guy so she's not sure whether she's seeing an intruder or whether she's seeing a ghost whether she's seeing you know whether she's crazy and just imagining things um, well, that's yeah, and and that's the beauty of Turn of the Screw, right? Turn of the Screw, which yeah. is a story of like a governess who goes to take care of two children um, at the behest of their uncle at this like spooky manor, and a whole bunch of stuff goes on, and she's not sure uh, whether it's real or whether it's in her head. It's considered sort of like sort of similar to Jane Eyre to be like a very extremely psychological. 
a story of a governess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what expertise Henry James on has, has on female psychology, but you know, um, it's still an incredibly effective, like, are, are there, or aren't there ghosts here? What, and the sort of romantic slash sexual nature of these ghosts lends the whole thing, like an extra charge of like forbidden, um, what have you. So, or maybe what have you, yeah. What have you, you know. Um, but it's also um, it's also yeah. a little bit of a, a precursor to gaslight, which is a term that yeah. is very popular now. I believe that was a play. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, before it was a movie, um, but it was you know the term gaslighting refers to somebody who's telling you that something you objectively observe is not happening. Uh, right. The, the, that that gaslight isn't flickering. What are you talking about? And uh, right. <laughs> in in Turn of the Screw, what was really innovative about it was uh, the the governess starts to suspect that the kids she's trying to protect from this presence she perceives are actually in on it, or maybe they're the ones causing it, or or somehow provoking this, or or misleading her. Like she might, you know, these kids might be playing her, <laughs> and she. Uh, the idea of like evil children was very unusual uh, in 1898 when this story was first published. So they're not, you know, not necessarily evil. She's just not sure about them. And that adds an, a nice little layer to it, to all of the Freudian psychobabble that also is going on beneath the surface. Did you ever see The Others, the 2001 film with Nicole Kidman? Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, that one's that's one of my favorite like loose adaptations of Turn of the Screw. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also um, I saw a stage play of Turn of the Screw uh, when I was really sort of soft and impressionable and young, and it, it was a two person play, and the woman played the governess, and then the man uh, played every other role, and mm. it's the scariest thing. <laughs> I've ever seen in my entire life. It was so unsettling. Oh, I could um, see how that would work. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, played all the kids and all and it was just like, oh, it was it was awful. Um, so, you know, and 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 like and and really works effectively with this idea of like how much of this is in my head and how much is not and stuff like that. So, so here we are. We're 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 turning that screw with Henry James. So this is a uh, what is it? Set, it's set in the eighties, right? Um, in the year of our Lord, nineteen eighty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> so nice, a nice eighties uh, period piece. Uh, and uh, Victoria Pedretti plays the uh, the governess who comes to this manor at the behest of Henry Thomas, uh, the absentee uncle, to take care of these two kids. I want to say. Hmm, these kids are extraordinary. Um, the actors that they got to play yeah. these, the, the charges um, are incredible. And um, I'm, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little mixed on the series as a whole, mm-hmm. but like, so it's Benjamin, Benjamin Evan Ainsworth and Amelia B. Smith. But like, it would be so easy for these kids to be cloying or for them to be like over the top in some of the creepiest stuff or, or whatever. But uh, they're just really, rooted in uh in something that feels very true very actually childlike um and i would say benjamin evan ainsworth especially who has who has like a pretty heavy lift he has to do on something does an incredible job so yeah a very uh, hard line to walk especially for a kid actor because you know there are times where the kids have to behave in an unusual way sometimes i don't think this is a spoiler sometimes they seem 
like they're not kids. <laughs> and so to sometimes be very childlike and be very innocent and likable, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, sometimes you cast a mean looking little boy to play, uh, uh, Joffrey or to play um, <laughs> to play Malfoy or to play uh, Damien in the Omen and yeah. like yeah they just there's something about them that has like a you know sinister look about them but then they're very sweet people in in real life and uh, and these kids you know they're not just they're not just they don't have a look that goes one way they sometimes are are very appealing and very sweet and you want to protect them and other times you're like mm-mm no. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> which which <clears throat> as somebody with two children i will say is often <laughs> the case <laughs> it strikes true to life so there's some um you know some some hidden ghosts some not so hidden ghosts around that's uh part and parcel with haunting um then there's also some staff to sort of flesh out the cast so there's Ro coley um who i love from i zombie and just want like nothing but the best for him uh he plays the chef uh or, or the cook owen and wait, wait wait before we go any further we do have to mention his extraordinary Omar Sharif mustache. <laughs> oh like, God, boy, he has the most luxurious mustache <laughs> I've ever seen. Like it's, it makes a. Uh, uh, it makes Tom Selleck look like David Niven. <laughs> it's it's, it's just, funny, yeah, because on a zombie, he had a be- like a full beard, and it's oh, just really? the most beautiful, luxurious beard you've ever seen. And uh, I was once in an elevator with that beard at the Television Critics Association. Like we're all stuck together in a hotel, and I got in an elevator, and I was like, "Oh my god, Raul Coley's beard is in this elevator with me!" Oh my god, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just sort of like looked straight forward, tried not to make eye contact with the beard. Um, He's an interesting yeah. blend of geek. And handsome. Like, yeah. there are times where he's very dweebish and times yeah. where he's very, like, very leading man. And, like, uh, but the push broom mustache, I was just like, wow, this, is this a visual <laughs> effect? Like, <laughs> it's like... Uh, I honestly it think they, they put that mustache in there just because it is so, like, bushy. I think they put that in there because yeah. he looks... I, a, a little too I think he would have been a little too like dashing and handsome with the beard um so I think the push broom cut just makes him look yeah like a little fusty there's yeah. a sequence later in the series too which mm-hmm. we'll explore in the spoiler portion where you don't want to I think it helps mask his expression a little bit too mm. right yeah I see what you're saying yeah so um yeah so I think that that helps um but but uh okay let, yeah I don't mean to do and then we have uh, Tania Miller, who was playing Mrs. Gross, the house Mrs. Gross, the housekeeper. Uh, mm. Classic spooky manner role, uh, a definite twist on it. But there's always a housekeeper, right? Named Mrs. Something. So, um, and this character is taken directly from the Turn of the Screw. Uh, Mrs. Right. Gross was a real, was a full on character in that. Uh, although she gets a lot more dimension in this series, and. Uh, Tania Miller, man, I think gives the best performance on this whole series. We can talk more about her later. Um, And then Amelia Eve is sort of the last main cast member who plays the gardener. Um, Mm -hmm. Jamie, I think. And so, yeah, so that's our that's our our household staff uh, jammed up in a spooky house (laughs) with with a spooky like duck pond in the front of it. Uh, And two kids who may be who might be lovely and might be spooky. We don't know. So that's that's the setting for uh, for the haunting of Bly Manor. Um, There's obviously there's also like some fun, spooky, long family history tied up in the house. And 
like <laughs> we, we should mention. I think there's one left that we <laughs> yeah. we, we mentioned oh, Oliver Jackson Cohen as Peter Quint, yes. who's like uh, I think oh, he right. was kind of like a assistant to Henry Thomas and his brother. Correct. Uh, Correct. And uh, but then there's the previous governor, right. uh, yes. Tahira Sharif. Uh, her name was Miss. Uh, the character's name is Miss Jessel, who died. That's all we really right. know as uh, as Danny Clayton, the new governess, arrives at the house is that she died, and it was tragic. So this is a um I'll just I'll just say my like vague spoiler free impressions uh you know just so folks can see like whether or not they think this is something they want to do. Haunting of Hill House was like an A plus series for me. I went back and rewatched it like immediately after I finished it. Um something I've said many times since and I definitely said at the time is that the, it felt less like a horror show and more like a family adult family drama there's you know there's like a kind of famous episode in the middle of haunting of hill house that takes place ostensibly all in one shot sort of like in a Mm -hmm. funeral parlor that's just very like family drama like could be an episode of parenthood because it's about a family sort of fighting with each other while spooky stuff happens around them and um and so all of that um just made me love that that show so much this is a is is a shaggier i would say version of that you don't have the cohesion of everyone is part of a family and have a shared history together to sort of act as a spine of this show these are various characters who are coming towards each other um centering on blind manor um you do have a love story there's a love story at the center of this so that's sort of the like emotional core of it um in the end but uh you know it just it just feels a little less like well put together uh in that way the performances are still fantastic the production value is incredible looks gorgeous um but you know i i found myself without that like stronger cohesive element to it um i found myself feeling that like netflix drag of uh, you know there could have been a like fewer episodes to make this a Hmm. tighter uh spookier tale so that's sort of my my vague uh, take on it. What what did you think? Andy? Um, I hear what you're saying. I think, I mean, I, I it's it's I hate to be contrary, but I kind of like that it wasn't the same that same structure. Like a uh, not just that it it would be a family story, but I like that the stories are a little more loosely connected. It's kind of like one of those pots on your front porch that have like a different. Like it's one big ceramic thing, but it's got little spots for different succulents <laughs> to grow in. <laughs> like the stories really are separate in some ways. Uh, Mrs. Gross's story, um, the uncle played by Henry Thomas, his story is like they kind of get their own standalone pieces, but they branch off of this main narrative. And what I liked about that was it felt a little fresher to me as I moved along. Um, it didn't drag for me at all. Like I was, I I think there are weaker and stronger parts of the series. Um, but in general, I was like sad when it ended. I kind of, I wanted some more and I would have been down for a little more, even a little more exploration of the ghosts, which I, I think we could get to in a second. But, um, uh, the ghosts in Hill House were unnamed. They were just disturbing creepy presences often layered into the background and there's a neat psychological phenomenon where you're watching the action and you're unaware of what's just sort of standing in open space they're not right we call them hidden ghosts but the interesting thing is 
they're not hidden at all. Like they're just there. Oh, uh, once you know they're there, you're once like, you know oh they're my there. God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But a lot of times, you know, you miss them un- unless you're watching for them. And uh, I think what this story does, instead of telling the story of people who are very closely entwined, uh, a family who are uh, reckoning with serious things that have happened to all of them, uh, you have in this story a group of characters who've come together who each have their own orbits, right? But they, um, uh, uh, they're, they're pinballing off of each other. They're caught in, and this is a loaded phrase, they're caught in each other's gravity. And mm-hmm. I like that they were, uh, a, they were a little bit individualistic, that they were not necessarily, it's not all one cohesive story. It's probably four or five different stories all orbiting each other, but intersecting. So, I, I liked that. It felt it felt like I got the same vibe from Haunting of Hill House, the same scares and the same entertainment value, but a different kind of story, which is what you want from a sequel or you know a second installment, what, what have you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're right in that I wouldn't have wanted like a carbon copy of Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. But what is interesting, Haunting of Hill House does at least have that really familiar. Uh, especially to me because I'm obsessively rewatching Lost for another project, mm-hmm. but it's that it's that Lost inspired um, structure of like you know a, a, an episode pegged to a character, right? So the blank episode and Haunting of Bly Manor has a few of those, right? I could safely say there's a there's the Mrs. Gross episode, there's the Henry Thomas episode, you know, so like that, but it's not quite as clean as that uh the mm-hmm. way that Haunting of Hill House was. So um, what's interesting is they're more entwined at the beginning. And then yeah. as you move along, it's like it's like you have the Henry Thomas episode, you have the Tanaya Miller episode, uh, and and then another I think let's call it the black and white episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh you know, it's it's interesting to me. And I I guess something that it does capture about Turn of the Screw, and, and for this I wanna give it credit, is uh sense of frustration. And you might think that that's a negative, but I I don't think it is, because I think with with Turn of the Screw and stories like it, you're frustrated that you don't know everything. You're frustrated that you don't know more. You're frustrated that your characters aren't just like getting in the car and leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, you're frustrated. Um, it's it's that good frustration. It's a tension and it's just sort of like a – and things just feel like sort of impenetrable um, in certain ways. People are behaving oddly what's up with this housekeeper? What's up with these children? What's going on? Why can't I get straight answers sort of thing? So, you know, Victoria Pedretti, who I thought was, I mean, Victoria Pedretti in, in Haunting of Hill House and also in, she was fantastic in season two of you. Um, she, uh, she's the part of Haunting of Hill House that really, really, really sticks with me. Um, she, like her episode of Haunting of Hill House just made me openly weep. Um, and so putting her at the center of this, um, is, is a smart move. She's more centralized in, in this story, um, as an audience surrogate for the frustratingly spooky things that are going on, you know? Yeah. Her Nell in Hill House was a lost person. Like, she was doomed, and she played it with such heaviness, such grief. Um, yeah. Just thinking about it jokes me up, right? and that's a, it's it's like it sounds silly to say about like a ghost movie, but that to me that is the heart that Mike Flanagan captured with that story is that it's this 
spooky ghost story, a Halloween story. And yet you, f- I think you felt a little more deeply for all of those characters than you do for these ones. Um, yeah. That was family. These are coworkers. So you care right. about them, but you just don't know them as well. Um, and I think what's interesting is, so Nell, Nell was just this haunt, uh, you know, hate to use this word but like a haunted person she was <laughs> yeah. she was she was in the shadows and her danny clayton in bly manor is so sunny and chipper she reminds me of the babysitter from <laughs> and i mean this as a compliment in the incredibles you know who's like why well, jack jack is just he's just full of energy over here and i'm but don't yeah. you worry mrs incredible i'm gonna take good care of it like she's so upbeat and she she's has got that this 1980s Midwestern yeah, vibe thing. Like, yeah, yeah. And she's older, but she seems like a, like a teenager. Like she's yeah. in, and in some ways I think she's very repressed and we can get into that in the spoiler yeah. portion. She does seem like, you know, sometimes you meet like she's younger than this, but like you meet like a middle-aged lady, a school teacher or something who spends a lot of time around children and then like even around adults kind of talks to adults like they're children. <laughs> sure. She has, yeah. <laughs> she has that vibe about her. And um you know, it completely changes her look. Uh, this sort of sunny, puffy '80s blonde hair, uh, very American in a in a very uh, uh, laced a pa- up British world. Yeah, yeah, very pastoral British yeah. environment. Uh, I like the performance, and I think, but I think it gives her a, a place to go. Is that she is so cheerful? She almost seems like somebody from an '80s comedy, but she's in an '80s horror story. Yeah, and. Um, uh, I thought she did a. I thought she did a very good job. So uh, let's go into spoilers in a second. But yeah, I will. I will just sum up and say, uh, "Haunting Hill House" is a plus for me. This, I'm afraid, is like a bit more like a B plus for me. But it's still, I would still recommend it. Um, oh, yeah. I just, yeah, I just think that it's it's not quite the like. Plus, a Haunting Hill House had the advantage of taking me completely off guard because, like, I had heard some good things about Mike Flanagan, but I had only ever seen Oculus, so I did not expect what I got from Haunting of Hill House. I was really, really pleasantly surprised. And so then you come into this one with, like, the Haunting of Hill House expectations, and it's like, oh, well, it's not quite there for me, but um, still still a spooky ride. So there you go. And as we as we venture into spoiler land, I think this is something I was hinting at before about when we talk about the hidden ghosts is in in Hill House, the hidden ghosts, uh, they were there for atmosphere. You never got an explanation of who they were. You got a little explanation about some of the things that had happened in Hill House and who some of the more pronounced presences were. But in Bly Manor, the ghosts that appear are very specific. And they all have, to one degree or another, their own origin story that comes out as the, as the series progresses. So, next, shall we venture into spoiler territory? If you, if you haven't Let's watched the it. rest, press pause uh, and rejoin Fire us. beware. Here come the spooky spoilers. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Um, All right. So let's talk about, um, like, 
two two highlight episodes for us. I we we've talked about this a little bit before mm-hmm. off mic, so I think I think I remember that we agree on this. So let's start with the Tania Miller, Mrs. Gross episode, which I think I think is the strongest episode though we could make a case maybe for another one. Um, but this is a this is a pretty high concept looping through time. As you mentioned, Raul Coley's mustache uh plays a plays a good role in this episode to keep him sort of impenetrable. Um you and I both kind of clocked that there might be something going on with Mrs. Gross early on because she wouldn't eat. And you and yes. I are both like, oh, uh, ghost for sure. <laughs> Already dead. Um and we were we were uh, like we were right, but I was like I, I wound up doubting myself a little bit because I was like, oh, that that lady is definitely already dead. And then like something happened like because she can still like move things. So I was like, OK, she could touch things and hold things. So maybe, what are the ghost rules here? Um, well, and, and that's yeah. what's interesting about this is there are he sets up very specific ghost rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, like that wasn't the case in Hill House. There weren't there wasn't as as precise a logic to how the ghosts operated. But in Bly Manor, the rules are you die, you die at Bly Manor, and your spirit stays at Bly Manor. And you're basically able to manifest yourself as another person for a time. And the more time that passes, the more you begin to fade even from yourself, even though you still exist there. And that allows for two things. One, it, it leads to these ghosts who are older who have like these almost erased faces (laughs) you know the faces that begin to disappear that's a spooky image but i think joanna like one of the things that really worked for me about blind manor was that that idea of the spirit disappearing because i think anybody who's lost somebody that they love in their life as time goes on you know when you first lose them you just think how will i continue without this person like mm. I just can't imagine life without them. And then you get t- 10, 20, 30 years away. And the sad thing is you start to forget what their voice sounded like. And you start to forget what life was like with them. And it's not that you're, lo- it's not that you're trying to lose them. It's just, it diminishes, it dims. And as time goes on, that's what happens. And I think that's a very real thing that's sort of layered in an emotional, realistic, heartfelt thing that's layered in among this like Halloweeny spooky story. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And it gives our, you know, we've got our two well, I would say one villainous mm-hmm. <laughs> ghost. Uh and uh also Mrs. Jessel is there. Um, but the uh a, a, a strong motivation that is at least somewhat sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Like the the reason they're motivated by this desire to not fade away to nothingness. Uh, and they will if they stay at Bly, right? So they're trying to become passengers uh, in other bodies in order to get out of there. Now, unfortunately, the targets that they have marked here are children. And that is something we can't be sympathetic towards. Huh. Um and, uh, but it, what, what is interesting to me, I will say that I think, I think that Bly goes a little too far in trying to create sympathy for everyone. I'm usually down with that. I usually mm-hmm. like, uh, let's make our villains nuanced. That's something I usually really respond to. But in Bly, um, the, 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 the malicious, uh, presence 
of um you know this this former assistant um peter 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 quinn yeah Yeah, like he to me like just the the full name like peter quinn like that to me uh strikes fear as this almost like malevolent primordial like hypersexual evil that like runs through turn of screw that's just like my takeaway from turn of the screw and so then to like try to make him like this sympathetic young man who has this horrible family and you know we're we're meant to feel for him i'm like that's that's a that's a that's a facet i could have done without a you could have flattened that character a little bit more and it would have worked for me i don't know what do you think uh i hear what you're saying i mean i think it was just about creating a bit of degree on him and versus the uh the character uh played by kate siegel i'm blanking on her name but she's the big bad of the series right um remember we're in spoiler territory people so no complaints (laughs) (laughs) um i think it, it was just meant to put a little daylight between him and her but i think another real thing that's embedded in bly manor is the corrupting influence of toxic personalities and you have mm. that in families too, but you have it in workplaces. Hell, we have it in politics. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> uh, we don't have to go there uh, necessarily. But um, it's, you know, Miss Jessel is a very sweet and in some ways innocent, right. perhaps naive character. Uh, and she's corrupted by Peter Qu- She's seduced by him in right. In several ways, in all the ways, she's uh, you know she. I think she's kind of impressed by how cool and confident he is, and he strikes me as a grifter. Like he's moved in on these brothers, these two business partners, and he's climbing his way up the ladder. And he just seems like you know he's the evil assistant who's gonna someday uh, <laughs> uh, stick a knife in your back, you know. Right. And uh, and he you know Miss Jessel's very beautiful, so he obviously falls for her. But what's funny is we talked about the kids who they. Uh, are uh, taking possession of sometimes feeling like real children. And then other times they have this weird adult quality about them. Peter Quint has that as a grown man. Like there are times Mm, he's very charming and suave and you can see why she fell for him. And other times he has that bad boyfriend vibe of like really immature and needy and clingy and angry and tantrum throwing. And that's (laughs) before, that's before we find out, just what a rotten cheat he is. Like, he's a bad dude. Yet, I don't think he has uh, had the time to develop into a the full-on toxic narcissist that he would eventually become. Because right. he, he is offed by this w- lady of the lake who really <laughs> is the, you know, from centuries past, is just sort of uh, laps him in narcissism. You know, she's, she is, I think, just, she's the, he's the JV team. She's the varsity of, uh, she's of, the MVP. <laughs> of self-pity and yeah. self-delusion and, self, and, and selfishness. Every self that you could attach, she comes to embody. And he's like working his way. He's the assistant. He goes from being the assistant to the brothers to kind of being like the apprentice to her. So, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't mind that he had a little bit of sympathy about him. You know, uh, I think it just helped differentiate the different levels that he was on versus the Lady of the Lake. I also, I mean, like, I have to say, like, I, I agree with your assessment of, like, this narcissistic personality attached to this Lady of the Lake. I just, 
as an origin story, you know, the, the, the black and white episode that you alluded to is, mm-hmm. is the origin story for this, uh, you know, uh, terrorizing ghost. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to me because like uh, jealousy between two sisters over a man feels like a weird, mm. weak, weak yeah. origin story. And then like, and then the fact that she's on this like programmed loop that doesn't really seem to have any, like, you know, she'll drown a Peter Quinn. She'll drown Danny as well. Like she doesn't, it's not a, she's not a discerning ghost. And that, I don't know that like, I'm trying to figure out like what's her motivation. And then she just doesn't have one. She's just like a clockwork on a track. Well, um, at this point, that goes so. back to the other thing about how even to themselves, the ghosts fade away is that they don't really remember who they are or what they are. They just become more like patterns. Uh, the longer right, but, they've been but, there. But in that way, then, like, that's less spooky to me than a ghost with uh, a personality or intention. It, you know what I mean? It so, is. There's a, there, that's the that's the trade-off, I think, is that yeah. she was once... Um, and I, I would, you know, I would argue there's a little more to it than, like, jealousy over a man. She's very sickly, her character, as a, as a human when she's alive. And I think there's, like, resentment at being ill, at being separated from her family, uh, because at not being able to fully participate in life. Like, there's a bitterness to her that I think also humanizes her, that you can see why this cascade of bad luck would begin to warp your personality and really make you resentful, really make you I indifferent think, to yeah. people, you know? Uh, and this is based on not the turn of the screw, but from another... Uh, Henry James right. short story called The Romance of Certain Old Clothes, uh, which involves like two sisters and uh, a box of dresses that belong to the one that didn't live. Right. But that's like and it's like a it's a short story. You know, it's like a short mm-hmm. uh, twisty ghost story. And, and like, yes, they only dedicate one episode to it. I just think that the ep- that episode doesn't quite get there mm-hmm. for not just her motivations, but the sister's motivations. Like you could see why the sister, um, you know, the always the submissive sister to her more dominant sister's personality, having, you know, the, the, the wear and tear caring for someone who is chronically ill can take on you. Like all of that stuff is, is there and understandable, but there's just something that, weird that happens with the sister that doesn't quite track with like her established personality. I don't know that whole episode. I wanted to really love it. Cause I, I do usually like, you know, I like there's a weird later season episode of lost that is sort of like famously disliked. Cause they just like zoom way back in time and you're like, what's happening. And, and a lot of people don't like it, but I like when shows do something, take a weird wide swing like that. And so mm-hmm. I really wanted to like this like weird, black and white let's do a a short story and it's going to be the origin story of our lady of the lake sort of thing vibe but uh yeah it just didn't it didn't work for Mm. me and i wanted it well i think yeah i i i agree that it doesn't quite it doesn't quite get there it falls a little short it's still enjoyable uh, i mean honestly speaking i still got a kick out of it but it did feel like i do think the ghosts they become artifacts in the story And the minute you begin answering them and exploring them, they disintegrate a little bit, you know? So once the more understanding we have about this lady in the lake, okay, now we have a full understanding of the rules is that her misery was so intense that it became like uh, a weight on this home. 
and that weight has its own uh, magnetic field in a way so that your own spirit can't go. That it, and it attaches to the, uh, let's say, to, to stretch the metaphor a little, the iron in whatever grieves you, right? Whatever regret you have. So if you're Mrs. Gross and right. you regret that you've forever stifled your own ambitions uh, by clinging to what's safe and what's known, uh, that's the thing that helps attach you to this home. And, you know, there are various other figures who have, you know, less well-explored storylines, but that, that all of them are being... Uh, pulled, held, held at this place by the presence of the lady in the lake. And, um, you know, I think it's worth noting that uh, Danny Clayton, Victoria Pedretti's governess character, she shows up at Bly Manor already haunted. Yeah. And I don't know if you want to delve into that at all. Uh, like, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, she feels, res- sorry, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an evocative ghost. The like flashing glasses. Uh, ghost she sees of him her in, mirror, in mirrors. He doesn't necessarily um, appear to her outside of yeah. that, um, but she sees him reflected in in cars and storefronts. Uh, yeah, I think it's just like I'm sorry to say this, but I think when we got to the moment where he does die, it felt like a little. Uh, the guilt she carries feels good and real, not good, but like it feels very. Uh, well laid and understandable to me. The the fact that the guilt is tied to her own sexuality and the fact that you know she felt like she couldn't express who she was in the eighties in the Midwest and and felt like she let down this this boy who was uh her her dear friend her whole life but whom she didn't love and. There is an element, you know, just in the in that there is that element of toxicity mm-hmm. with Peter Quinn. There is a bit of an element of toxicity oh, yeah, with sure. this guy too. Uh, he's he's got that nice guy possessiveness sort of of her, and not reading the room in any sort of way. Um, yeah. And uh, but I I just like the the manner of his death was just sort of like I don't know, just like yes. a little silly in a way that like felt like it it undercut the effectiveness that that ghost had had so far. I so. Suppose, you know. <sighs> Yes, I agree. It's a little extreme. And then it becomes... Yeah. Okay, it gets a little over the top, the way he dies. I don't think that was the right choice to make. for how. I think he having him die might have been appropriate or necessary for the story. Um, so I guess we can say the thing that's vexing her is that she's gay. She's a lesbian. She's attracted right. to women. It's the 80s. And I... And, Again, talk about like things fading away. I like think back to the eighties. It was it was not okay to be out. It just was not. Right. You were a criminal at worst or disgusting at best to so many people, to the culture. Like it was it was a hateful time and that was normalized. And so I do think that's one of the things, like looking at it through the twenty twenty lens, um, it's going to be hard for some people who weren't alive then or were kids then to remember like just how intense that, that, uh, that compulsion to remain in the closet was just the fear associated with it. So she, so what I find interesting about her relationship with this boy is they were very close friends. We see them as little kids, like best pals, you know, and yet he does not know this about her, 
right? right. <laughs> even the, they're not close enough that she could even trust him with her, her deepest feelings, you know, to say, I, this is who I am. This is who I feel. And he's fallen in love with her. What's not the love? She's beautiful. She's fun. You can understand why he is attracted to her as a, as a straight guy. And yet he's not listening to her. He's not picking up, not seeing he's her. not picking up yeah. on her cues. And when he does pick up on her tearfulness that maybe marrying him is not what she wants, he, re- he reacts angrily. And in a way, I understand even the anger. He's I not abusive. Yeah. He's not abusive. He's just, he's hurt and he lashes out. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know what, what means of offing him would have been appropriate. Um, I don't know that suicide or something would have been, uh, you know, any better. Like maybe he was so embarrassed, uh, you know, that it, ta- it, it, it severed the last thread of his like self-respect or whatever that she doesn't want me. Uh, maybe he has some bigotry in him too. Like had he taken his own life or something? I don't know that that would have worked either. That might've been too dramatic, even for this Gothic romance, but another kind of accidental death. Uh, I think would have just been less jarring uh, and still would have allowed her to carry the regret that maybe she led him to this, you right. know, maybe it would have, even if it's just been a car accident, she finds out he, de- he left angrily and died in a car accident, but like stepping out of the car yeah. and getting creamed by a truck, like it just has that meet Joe black vibe about it. Like, <laughs> it was know? like the end of mean girls sort of vibe to it. I don't know. It was just, it felt like almost a comedy moment in what should have just been straight tragedy. The, so the, yeah, it, it's, I think the, the cliche mixed. of uh, uh, Mac truck from stage left just has to go right. Like that's, let's, let's, yeah, that, that's let's get rid too of much. it. But like, you know, like <laughs> the head, he died in a car accident and she gets word that night after their big argument, you could legitimately yeah. go, was he driving erratically because he was upset? Did he do right. this on purpose to hurt himself or to hurt me? Like, and those unanswered questions, I think, would have justified seeing him everywhere. You know, right? You could easily be haunted by that. So, um, so that's you know that's the thing that that only worked uh, a little bit for me. I do I. I do want to get back to the to the Tania Miller episode mm-hmm. um just quickly the this this season of Bly Manor has a lot of loops there's a lot of looping motifs right and this is sort of the epitome of of that where we see Mrs. Gross is sort of stuck on a track revisiting something trying to get to the truth of something which is that she's already dead um and and I guess my point my point in saying earlier that like you and I had sort of uh, clocked this early is not to be like, oh, how clever are we? But more like it doesn't matter. Like and that's that's to me the mark of a really, really well executed storyline on television is when you know the twist or the conclusion or the reveal already. And it's still an incredibly compelling and engrossing hour of television. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of TV shows these days, I think rely on that surprise, the jolt of surprise alone being the thing that um, hurts you or, or emotionally impacts you. Um, and, you know, we, <laughs> we say this on one of my other podcasts, we talk about how it's not, it's not about, it's about the execution mm-hmm. and this is executed. So, well, this like sort of tender 
low-key love story between Raul Coley's character and Tanai Miller's character. You know, you like, you love these people and you want them to be together. She's got her own tragic was stuck in like a bad, like it feels stuck on at Bly Manor in a way that's not just literally tied to her ghostliness. Right. And, and, um, Raul Coley's character, the cook, is also sort of stuck there taking care of his, like, sick mother. And they have this opportunity. Like, they could go. They could go to Paris. Go. You want them to go, but it's too late. She's already dead and she can't go. And that's just, like, devastating, I, I um, love, yeah, you know, to me. I anyway. agree. And I like that the show is willing to give us characters who don't have a trauma that's in capital letters, right? Like, right. dead fiancé or... Um, you know, what's afflicting them is much more of a, like, they're both like George Bailey type characters from It's a Wonderful Life. Like they both feel this yearning to go further and have ambition, but they feel obligation as well to stay close to home. And sometimes that obligation becomes an excuse for you to not do the thing that you're nervous about, even if it excites you. And I like that that's a low key, again, a real thing that's layered into the show where I could relate to Mrs. Gross, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah. uh, and, and she, in, in her plight seemed real and believable. And the moment where we begin to realize that, um, she is on a loop just as a lady in the lake is on a loop that she's reliving things from the past, uh, because she is, she has been murdered and is a ghost. Um, the tragedy of that is it's already too late. It is too late for her. And she, and I think that's a a thing we don't often get in, especially Hollywood storytelling, which is in Hollywood storytelling. There's never, it's never too late, right? You can still make a change. Right. And in this, and in her case, it is literally too late. Like she, she didn't act when she had the chance and now she's, now it's over. And all she can do is relive it. And she's such a, 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 a ruminative character, so reflective on that. And you can tell it, it, you know, again, it's a, it's a real thing that haunts her. It's not some violent extreme episode. Yeah. It's, it's just a beautiful episode. And, and the, the challenges of telling an episode of a character unstuck from time. I I mentioned this to you when we chatted uh, immediately after watching all the episodes um, about how much this reminded me of the Sissy Spacek episode of Castle Rock, which Castle Rock is a mixed bag, but that episode is widely considered to be very good. And Sissy Spacek's characters also sort of unstuck in time. And that's really hard to pull off in a coherent way. And I think this episode actually does it even, even more successfully than that um, episode of Castle Rock did, even though I really liked that episode of Castle Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something, you know, I, the the vagueness and, and how it helps explain her vagueness earlier in the season. And then there's just something about the performance. It's just, it's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. Um, she's so, she's so good at switching back and forth between being like bright and on top of the ball and really like effective and efficient and then confused and vague and foggy, which is like Mm -hmm. the the thing that she's ping ponging through in this experience. And her devotion to the actual house, like the house itself is a, it's a vessel. It's not like a malevolent house. The wood and the blaster is not evil, but her pride in it is it's, it's sweet. It's also misguided. And I think anybody who has put their job before other things in their life that matter 
um, can relate to that as well. She talks about, like, this is where I'm from. Like, I don't live right. here. I'm an employee of Bly Manor. But she's very proud of her work, you know. And I think that's nice, too, is it's not total drudgery for her. She she likes being there. She likes the home. She probably wishes she could live in a nice home like that. And, in fact, she does live there. So, um, Yeah, there's a moment in one of her, her sort of, like, hops through time where she's talking to, you know, the late – uh, lady of the of the house and and she's you know the 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 kid's dead mom and she's comforting her um mrs gross and she's like you can just stay here forever and i'm like oh no she's gonna stay there forever no um but uh yeah her her loyalty to this family which i think can be sourced back to that relationship she had with uh the the dead mom um and and also there's something you know, something that's definitely not in Turn of the Screw necessarily, something sort of feminist in her her defiance of Peter Quinn and like like her yes. defense of Miss Jessel and like all that sort of stuff. Like that she is she is the only one sort of fighting the fight uh here for a while and um and I and I really love that for her. She so, is, yeah. yeah. She is very because I feel like it. I I can't. I I didn't reread Turn of the Screw, but I feel like in many, many, many versions of this story, a, a Mrs. Gross would just be judgmental of a Miss Jessel, right? And just mm-hmm. be like, "Well, you know, she made mistakes, or she was loose, or foolish girl, or whatever it is." But there's just a amount a, a tremendous amount of sympathy and a, and a correct identification of of Peter as the sort of malevolent actor here. Yeah. Um, but she's she's onto his bullshit way before anyone else is. So, um, yeah. All right, and let's talk about the last sort of very spe- well, well, we'll talk about the finale really quickly, but let's let's talk about the Henry Thomas episode, which is another loop uh sort of motif where you've got and based on another Henry James story where you've got um a man consumed by his own grief and trapped with these this grinning creepy uh you know, worst case scenario version of himself um in his own yes uh so this is based on a short story called the jolly corner about a man Mm -hmm. uh who revisits uh believe it was his childhood home and he encounters a doppelganger a version of himself that's has this creepy sneering leer and um what flanagan did and his team of writers did with this episode was give that story to the uncle character the henry thomas character who doesn't want anything to do with the kids. He wants to pay to have them taken care of and never go to Bly Manor. And they've created this story where he was having an affair with his brother's wife and maybe the father of the daughter. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, it's, I mean, there's no maybe about it, actually, by the time this episode ends. But right. he is, after their deaths, after his... Uh, his brother dies and his sister-in-law and lover dies. He feels, I mean, I don't know if regret is the right word. He feels guilt. He feels agony at the way he behaved, even though he's torn between actually caring about this woman and um, knowing it was wrong to have this relationship with his sister-in-law. Um, he's reckoning with his misdeeds. And I think, they found a way that really doesn't have anything to do with Bly Manor, <clears throat> excuse me, to to manifest that as a, in a spectral way, a scary, spooky way, by having him face this version of himself. 
the little devil on his shoulder that tells him, don't worry about it, go for it, do what you want, comes to life. And it's not a little devil, it's him. This is who I am. I did these things. And he is uh, wrestling with that. I liked it. I thought Henry Thomas gave a great pair of performances in this. What do you think? Yes, I know. I loved it. And like, uh, you know, I liked Henry Thomas in Haunting Phil House as well. Mm-hmm. I thought he was fantastic in that. And that's, uh, you know, just like Ryan Murphy does with his stable of actors. You and I were talking about like, I think you said this. I don't want to steal it from you. But you were like, where would Henry Thomas be? <laughs> Not for Mike Flanagan right now. Um, <laughs> like Henry Thomas, you know, he was he was he, he cropped up on uh, an episode of of. Uh, what is it called? Better, better things, right? Um, you know, he's been around like doing things here and there, but like not central to a story, uh, in a while. And uh, and this is just like a nice meaty material for him to work with and to yeah. show us what he can do. And like, uh, I got some questions about some of the accent work from some of the actors in this series as a whole, and I'm not sure Henry Thomas completely nails the British accent, but in terms of like the Playing two distinct characters mm-hmm. who look identical, acting opposite yourself, all that sort of stuff. Oh, it's good. It's so <laughs> good. And like, I don't have a, an office that I can go to and like Don Draper myself into like a, <laughs> a whiskey nap and stuff like that. But that just feels like really, you know, he just like he lives in his office now. There was a second where I thought he might be a ghost too because I was like, does this man, is he haunting his own office? Like mm. he can't leave or whatever. Um and, uh, yeah, it's just, I, I think, a very effective uh, hour of television. Yeah, very much so. Hey, look, he, I think he'd still be around. He's a character actor, right? He he yes, would be yes. doing very supporting parts. I think Mike Flanagan just has given him, he always gives him something juicy to do. Yes. And also something different. Like, he's not a bad actor. In the Ouija movie that Flanagan made, he, uh, he plays a priest. And, you know, this a quality about Henry Thomas, it's his face. And and you see this often with former child stars where a child is cast in something because they have an almost cartoonish face, big eyes, a big mouth. You know, uh, Ron Howard and Clint Howard are good examples of this. They had very cute, cupy doll looking faces. And Henry Thomas was a very cute kid, you know, very sweet. Obviously, like Elliot is indelible in the memory. And yet as an adult, he also, he still has that childlike face it's just now on a middle-aged man right so yeah. uh he's very handsome but he's able to do things with that face he has a very malleable face so in some of uh mike's other movies and shows he he can play sinister he can play sweet he can play somewhere in between he can play lost like he can play a lot of different things and he yeah. puts all those faces to good use in this episode so you know high five to henry thomas so lastly, I want to talk about this, the finale, which is, um, I think you and I had discussed, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't think there's, I don't think we can say this for certain, but I can say the impression that I got is that they had a whole extra episode of material, you know, as much as I was like, I don't want more. It also felt like a lot is jammed into that final episode. Um, and we've got this extremely long coda after like things are resolved at Bly Manor, we've got um, our, 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 you know, lovers, our, our young women who are in love trying to start a life together. And unfortunately, Danny is still haunted, no, knows that there's like a ticking clock on her and is still haunted. And so we, we see them sort of 
in quasi montage try to build a life together yeah. and know that that is that is doomed ultimately and um eventually is is doomed they don't find a way out of it and um there's also we we should mention a frame narrative that's that you know this is where carla gugino comes in who that started the episode and ends the episode of a wedding um where every every member of this family has developed an amnesia around uh this event um, yeah when you leave bly manor then what happened at bly manor goes away you stays at Bly Manor. Yeah, it's like Vegas. Um, <laughs> uh, but also, this is the Carly Gugino character. That narrator is, I think it was a male in the novel, but like. In the book, but, that, but, but yeah. That was, that's yeah. like a man at a party relates this story. So that framework was. Yeah, the frame narrative too. is absolutely. And we find out that she was the gardener. So she's now you know, a little bit older. They give, they put some, uh, some gray streaks in Carly Gugino's hair. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So take it away. <laughs> Uh, well, I just, I, this is, you know, for as much as I love, like, some of the core of Bly Manor, this is where a lot of it falls apart for me And this. So there's something, I think this love story is, is quite beautiful. I think, um, you know, I feel the emotion. I just feel like they're reaching for a metaphor of some kind with this haunting for Danny. And is it like, is it mental health? Like, what is it exactly? Uh, you know, there's, uh, and I just, you know... I don't think that they nail whatever metaphor they're reaching for. And then I also find the, the wedding, the closing wedding chapter to be Carla Gugino is great always. And so the, the poignancy of her looking in reflect, looking in water reflections for her lost lover, that is, you know, that gets me. I'm not a, I'm not a, a stone hearted person. I, you know, I like that gets to me, but like, it just all feels like a little like weird and, and, and slapdash in the end. Uh, and and that's too I'd bad because I think yeah. that there is as groundwork that they laid there, you know. I do feel like there is the they don't quite finish the knot, right? Like that the, it doesn't tie up neatly. Uh, from all these other examples I've given of like, oh, this feels like a metaphor for this aspect of real life. Yeah, I don't quite get what they're going for. I think if I were to to strain to understand it. I think, well, first, what happens is um, they resolve things at Bly Manor because the Lady in the Lake is drowning Flora. And we've established that the ghosts can possess the children, right? Uh, and what Danny does to save Flora from this juggernaut of a ghost is offer her own self, right? Take me. You can, you can inhabit me. And the Lady in the Lake disappears, presumably into Danny. But Danny is still Danny, right? So I think, I suspect, I think you're right. Like, it does feel like there's a, something a little disjointed about this finale. Was there to be a question of whether Danny was really Danny or whether she was this other spirit now trying to figure right. out how she fits into the world? Um, it almost becomes a separate story then. Right. Uh, and right. like, about these two women the gardener and the governess. The governess has, as you said, maybe it's like a mental health issue. There's there's something tragic about her, something that can't be fixed. And she ends up feeling this way too and takes her own life at Bly Manor in the lake. Goes back and, and just ends it. And so yeah. uh, it was very affecting for me, the final shot. But I agree with you that there isn't like, there isn't cohesion to that resolution. 
Like I don't fully understand what 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 it means or what we're supposed to take from it. Right. But right. What I did get from it was, um, in all of these stories of people who are haunted by things they've done, by people they've lost. Sometimes you can be haunted by that memory of the person you loved or the thing you loved. And that can be a comfort instead of a terror. So it ends with her asleep on the chair and there's just what's obviously Danny's hand on her shoulder. And I think, okay, I I think, I think (laughs) I just got, I just honestly, I just got a physical (laughs) chill. And and, you know, it's not meant to, is there a ghost in this podcasting closet? I don't know. Anyway, and and, you know, and it's not, it's not played as terrifying. It's not meant to be like, like, you know, Jason jumps out of, Freddie jumps out of the mirror or something. It's like, it's meant to be soothing. Um, And I think, I think that's also a true thing that, as I said, we begin to lose the memory of the people we've lost, but sometimes they come back to us in vivid ways, in a dream or in an object that you find that belonged to them and and you remember a certain time together. So I think what he was going for there is even in the midst of real life loss, that there can be memories when something is over that are happy, that are nice takeaways. And, you know, it ha- it all resolves at a wedding, which is a generally happy event. And we see some of the characters from this story that they have, you know, uh, happily ever afters, I guess you could say. Is that they've, they have, at, le- at the very least, they have had ever afters. <laughs> and that's... Yes. <laughs> they've moved on from Bly Manor. Yeah, yeah it's... Um, I, and I would be remiss in, in not mentioning this. And I don't think that... Uh, you know Flanagan or or his team or anyone working on this on this uh installment has any sort of like you know anything other than you know positive progressive ideas around homosexuality like you know uh, Danny's anxiety around her homosexuality is treated with like nothing but like sympathy and and all this sort of stuff unfortunately this idea of like these two women settle down and open up like what of a, a, a plant shop together mm-hmm. etc um if the way that it has to end tragically sadly feeds into that sort of barrier gaze trope where like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a gay couple doesn't get a happily ever after. You can maybe argue that like hardly anyone gets a happily ever after uh, in a ghost story. But like, I I just think it's, uh, I I, we're recording this before the episodes hit Netflix. I don't know how this is going to land with people. I'm a little, I'm a little worried that the, show is going to catch a lot of uh flack for that just because like gay audiences are so tired of seeing their on-screen love stories ending this yeah, way they don't yeah. all have to be tragic yeah. i mean yeah yes yeah they, they they definitely are open to that uh they're vulnerable to that criticism um yeah you know i will say they do get many years of being happy together it's not it seems really nice. I love their apartment. There's plants everywhere. It looks beautiful. They have like a good. They have a good life, and and they have yeah. a good life for a while, and then for a little while, it catches yeah. up to them. I mean, several. I think it's many years at least, isn't it? A decade. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's years. But but yeah. yes, I think, I think yes, you want. I think we're at a point in the culture now where, the we get the tragedy, and maybe what people are yearning for is is uh, hope a little more than than the the darkness and uh i don't know can you gather that from 
the hand on the shoulder is that a hopeful ending is there uh, maybe uh, but that's know? like <laughs> you you get a you get a you ghost might, wife you get a um, ghost wife yeah, yeah, yeah. no <laughs> Uh, no, it's just, um, I think all things being equal, of course, all things being equal, uh, you know, gay couples and ghost stories and straight couples and ghost stories can all end tragically together. Right. But we're not, all things are not equal yet. And so it's just disproportionate, uh, in our culture, in our, in our television, our film that, that, uh, gay romances and almost like very specifically lesbian romances end this way. And so, um, you know, I think I think that's just too bad. And I just I just wish I better understood what they were trying to say so that I could better like feel like I could justify it or or say, I, you know, yeah. this makes a lot more sense to me. Do you know? So. Absolutely. Um, but that is that's Bly Manor, a, a mixed bag of ghosts, a, a, a spooky treat grab bag for your <laughs> for your October watching pleasure. Uh, is there any, is there anything we, we didn't talk about that you want to make sure hmm. we hit? Um. Just, uh, I think the soundtrack is really good. <laughs> I love the 80s songs. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, The last yeah. little tidbit, this is just a little bit of an Easter egg, is um, I do like that Mike, uh, uh, Mike Flanagan is a filmmaker, a storyteller, who definitely respects his elders. And uh, this story, Turn of the Screw, has been adapted so many times. And I like that he he pays homage to the things that come before, you know, I think Mike is very sensitive to ghosts. And so he doesn't want to rattle them. I like that. Uh, there was a 1961 film called the innocence starring Deborah Carr, uh, directed by Jack Clayton, whose last name becomes Danny Clayton's last name in this, uh, as a tribute to him. Uh, that was a really cool adaptation from a generation or two generations ago. And, uh, uh, I like that he honors it and doesn't just try to pave over, adaptations of the past so you know it's a good way to to, to maintain good karma in the storytelling ghost <laughs> ghost verse can we point people to uh your your chat with mike and and stuff that you might have that might be up on the website around bly manor yeah i did a first look of bly manor and if you've watched it already i still think there's stuff in the story that i put in there that you wouldn't pick up as spoilers if you were reading it for the first time and getting an introduction but after you watch it i still i think there's a little more insight into it uh and some of the references and the way he talks about the characters so if you dig the show if you liked our conversation i think you can find some of his words mike flanagan explaining the story as as he saw it so hopefully uh, people enjoy that Excellent. Um, I, if all things going uh, go according to plan, I should have something up on some of the Henry James illusions that we talked about. Um, yeah, so that's 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 Anthony and Joanna on Bly Manor. We'll be back uh, with one more, at least one more special episode before the year is over. Uh, Anthony, where are we going uh, in our next very special episode of Still Watching? We are venturing into a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Oh, pew pew pew! It's Star Wars is back, Baby. Mandalorian. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby Yoda, the series starring the Mandalorian. <laughs> we'll be talking about Baby Yoda, and hopefully no ghosts uh, next time on uh, when Anthony. There are ghosts. Watching. Star Wars has ghosts. There are ghosts all over the place. Oh, Force ghosts, of course. Oh, <laughs> soy. All right, don't take my nerd card. All right, Anthony Bresnikan, where can where can folks find you uh, uh, until then? For now, I'm on Twitter at Bresnikan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know how yeah, long that's going to last uh, but, uh, <laughs> but 
<laughs> yeah, so you can you can find me at Joe wrote this. We're both on VF.com, you know, doing our best to bring you entertaining news about movies that may or may not ever come out. Um and uh and we'll we'll see you we'll see you next time. Stay safe, stay spooky. Happy Halloween.